So there's lots of money in the world. There's not a problem of a lack of money to solve the world's problems. It's it's a question of where it sits and whether governments can also have access to that to, in a way, put the guardrails on capitalism that lead to healthy societies and healthy economies. Welcome, everyone, to this new episode of The Next Page, our podcast, the Library and Archives, to advance the conversation on multilateralism. Today, we have the pleasure of having in our studio Paul Ladd, who is the director of the UN Institute for Research on Social Development. He's been the director there for several years, and he's coming also on the heels of a very um, recent report on inequalities uh, issued by the Institute last year, very recently, but towards the end of last year. And we'll talk about um, the the impact of inequalities on multilateralism, how multilateralism can solve or not the issue of emerging uh, of emerging inequalities that are a global crisis in their own right. So, Paul, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. You're a big friend of our library and archives. For years, we've been knowing each other for years. We worked on, on Agenda 2030 before it was called that way. At that time, it was called the Post-2015 Sustainable Development Strategy or Agenda. And so it's a pleasure to have you here in our studio. And for those who don't know you and the work at the Institute, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit how you became director Okay, thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to, to join you today to talk about um, UNRIST in particular. Um, some background on, on me to begin with, I guess, uh, would be helpful. I've, uh, I started my career in 1995 uh, in Guyana in the Central Bank uh, as part of a fellowship of the Overseas Development Institute. Uh, my training was in economics and mathematical economics, uh, more on the macro side. So I guess that's why I ended up there. And I worked uh, on the time on uh, Guyana's debt problems, its foreign exchange, uh, basically building institutions in a country that had been under stress for quite a long time. Uh, when I went back to the UK, I joined uh, what was then the opening year of the Department for International Development under the Minister Claire Short in 1997 and worked in London for a bit and then in Southern Africa for a bit uh, before joining Christian Aid as Chief Economist uh, in 2001. Um, I then briefly went uh, and worked with Gordon Brown for two years uh, on the, when the UK had the chair of the G8 and the EU, so all the way through the Glen Eagles, the aid commitments made, the commitments made on health financing and on HIV and AIDS. And then I finally joined the UN in 2006. So I've been working uh, in the UN for about 17 years now. Firstly in UNDP, uh, a bit of a break to go and support the Secretary General for two years on the economic and financial crisis, and then uh, working mostly on debt, finance, migration, trade, uh, before joining UNRIS in 2015 as director. So it's uh, coming up to just over seven years as director in UNRIS. And UNRIS is a is a is a small jewel uh, within the UN, um, small but very impactful. Um, it was established 60 years ago, so in 1963, and uh, its job was to, at the time, counter the, the dominant economic bent that was given to uh, development and supporting development. So it was an explicit uh, expression of support for social development issues within the UN system, funded by member states, but set up as an extra budgetary entity. So receiving nothing from the UN budget, uh, always mobilising the resources it needs each year to, to do its work. Um, it, it has this unique characteristic of, of, of being autonomous, 
which means in practice not only that it mobilises the resources it needs, but also that governments don't sit anywhere in its governance structure. So we have a board of regionally balanced, gender balanced academic advisors who are essentially and ultimately responsible for the quality of the work that we produce and the health of the institute. And what that means in practice is that that gives us space to tackle some of the, I guess, more difficult or challenging problems to do with development, which are often about politics, about power, um, about distribution. And more recently, uh, in the last few years, under our current strategy, we've used that autonomy to concentrate on the issue of inequalities in all dimensions. And we'll talk about that in a minute when we have our deep dive uh, concerning your new report, Crisis of Inequality. And this episode, actually, the title of this episode is Why We Need a New Eco-Social Contract. And this is the concept that you're putting um, forward in, in the report as well. But before we go there, just on the Institute, so born in 63, uh, like UNITAR, this constellation of independent thinking spots in the, in the system of the United Nations that were created by, by General Assembly on purpose to avoid that the organization falls upon itself and uh, cut itself out from from other ways of thinking global problems and their solutions. But before we go to the deep dive, I wanted to ask you also if you could describe the work of the Institute in some detail and what is the output, the concrete output of the Institute, what does it put out there and, and what about the impact the Institute has had? Yeah, the Institute essentially acts as a, a bridge to uh, thinkers and researchers all around the world into the UN. That's when we do our job uh, our job well. So as a small institute, we don't sit there and write research mostly ourselves. Of course, we sometimes we, we, we condense, we synthesize, sometimes we write our own pieces. But essentially what we are is a research coordination network. Our network of researchers typically numbers between three or 400 people a year who are all working on different issues under our strategy or issues that they care about, issues that they want to bring attention to, particularly in the UN and for member states to consider. So our outputs are research-based, research activities, all the way ranging from peer-reviewed journals and papers in academic uh, in academic uh, literature, but then condensed all the way down to uh, policy briefs, to podcasts, to blogs, and much more accessible entry points into the work um, that we do. So that's, in, in, in essence, what we do. We're an independent research institute that coordinates research with particularly marginalised uh, uh, voices from around the world to bring those into the UN to better inform policy that's made in the UN or practice that's driven by the UN at country level to have a real impact. And, and there are lots and lots of examples that we have in our 60-year history of where the research that we've done has been very much ahead of the curve and has led to positive developments then in the operational work that not just the UN does, but other governments, other bilateral partners, foundations, and also in civil society. And uh, so happy 60. It's an important milestone for the Institute. And uh, I want to underline here that most people wouldn't think that the UN has uh, the, 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 the idea and the courage to incite and encourage uh, research that has to do and touches on marginalized way of conceiving um, uh, global issues and global problems, global problem solving, but uh, inst- Andres and other institutes represent 
just that. And I think uh, it's uh, it's worth underlining. And thank you for, for uh, showing us a little bit uh, what the Institute is made of and what the impact is. So let's go for the deep dive, if, if you don't mind. So as, as, as I was saying before, you put out this uh, very impressive report called Crisis of Inequality. Uh, we'll put the link in our notes so our, our listeners will have a chance to, to take a look at uh, at least the synthesis of this report that I found uh, really enlightening. It's, uh, it's, it's groundbreaking, and I'm not using that word lightly. So the latest uh, flagship report, as you, as you call it, focuses on this issue of inequalities, and inequalities are now recognized as a global crisis. And the need, you say, for a new eco-social contract. So I would like to start the conversation just from this concept. What is a new eco-social contract, and uh, why do we need one? Um, Unrest introduced this this term or this concept actually in in our last flagship report in 2016. We don't produce these big reports every year. It's, it's a lot of work. They tend to crystallise and synthesise our work, and they take a we we engage with a very large external constituency for inputs for for quality control uh, for thinking. We spend a long time about it, but it was in our in our last flagship report, which was called Policy Informa- uh, Innovations for Transformative Change. Uh, implementing the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development was our contribution at the beginning of the SDGs to to how governments could get them done. But we did introduce this term or this concept of ecological social contract and we've developed that further since and that takes up a big chapter in our new flagship uh, report which is uh, based around inequalities and crises. But in essence uh, the argument is that first of all there's a diversity of social contracts around the world. Typically when, when people think about social contracts, they think about the uh, post-World War II agreements that were put in place in Europe and North America to move towards healthy economies and healthy societies, an implicit agreement between governments and those that they governed for sharing the distribution of of, of growth fairly. Uh, The support institutions that would be needed to protect healthy economies and healthy societies, social protection systems, health, uh, education, uh, etc. But there are, as I said, there is a plurality of uh, and diversity of social contracts around the world and we try to also recognise and draw on a different society have approached um, these compacts uh, in the past. But what has happened in particular in the last 40 years is that they have started very much to fray at the edges. And particularly in Europe and North America, you could even reach the argument that that they've broken down. And they've broken down for uh, a key reason that we highlight in the report, which is essentially how we govern and incentivise our economies. Um, But they're fundamentally flawed also because we've changed. The world has changed in so many uh, different ways in the last uh, 75 years. Uh, We've had a change in the way that conflict is expressed in the world. We've had uh, a significant change and growth in inequalities. We've had uh, a burst of migration which has changed societies. We've had huge leap forwards threatened now, unfortunately, on gender equality, meaning there are are many more women in the workforce. And so the social contracts that were envisaged post-World War II actually don't reflect the diversity and uh, change in the societies that we now live in. So they need to be made more inclusive. That's the first point. The second point is that uh, we now, I think, fully understand the environmental challenges that we're facing. 
the climate uh, uh, disaster that's already started to unfold and, it, and is expressing itself in extreme weather events, but also the threats to ecosystems and biodiversity. And so we need a, a social contract that is actually compatible with the planetary boundaries that we've also started to go beyond. So the term ecological social contract is uh, to set up to capture these two if you like, umbrella concepts, the need for greater inclusivity and the need to be ecologically sensitive also in our economic activity. So if if um, a reader goes to the report or the synthesis of the report, the report is quite large. It's, 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 a, it's a massive, uh, perhaps not massive, but it's a it's a decent book, yeah. But I've read the um, the synthesis, which is a few pages, maybe in the tune of thirty. Uh, I don't remember, but I think that this is worth um, um, a flyover for our audience. So, if you don't mind, Paul, what's in the report? So, what can a reader expect uh, from at least the synthesis of the report? Okay, so the the report is called Crises of Inequalities, which of course is is a play on the fact that the the world is facing a number of different crises at the current time. Uh, the world is facing a number of different inequalities, but actually inequality itself is a crisis and the crises and inequalities are, are, are interconnected. So through the report, um, which we started a long time ago, you know, even before the current uh, Russian uh, invasion of, of Ukraine, but very much in the COVID era, you could see all these crises brewing, interacting, overlapping and having severe social and economic um, consequences. So the first part of the report briefly takes us through those. What is what is happening in terms of the multiple crises that the world is facing? The second thing we do is try to link those to uh, big global trends, which are like glaciers. You can't stop them. They are, you know, they are about demographic change. They are about um, some of the uh, resource use issues that we face with the growing population. They're about urbanization, migration, uh, other global uh, other global trends that actually in some ways create crises as well or create situations that we're not prepared for that create crises then what we do is we go into some conceptual depth on on inequalities because i guess the first thing that crosses people's mind when you talk about inequality is money inequality of income inequality of wealth um uh, that people see now you know used to be when you lived in a small village in a small country without the internet 50 years ago, then you would see the inequality in your village and there may be some philanthropy or altruism which would put buildings up or support poorer households. But now you can see inequality across the world. You can pick up a smartphone in any part of the world and see the conspicuous consumption and almost excessive consumption of, of that people are experiencing in some parts of the world when others are going without food, fuel, housing, education, health, and it's very, very stark. Um, but that's the first thing that people usually think about uh, when they think about inequality. Of course, inequalities also exist because of group or individual circumstances. So they revolve around race, uh, ethnicity, sexual orientation, um, gender, obviously, disability, age. And these are what we what we tend to call horizontal inequalities and the economic ones we tend to call vertical. There's a very useful, I think, approach that people have started to use in the last few years, which look which is revolves around intersectionality, which says that, you know, depending on who you are 
and what you what you are, what you represent, your individual characteristics, they also interact with your opportunities and your ability and interact with vertical inequalities. So we tend to use this approach thoroughly in the report of intersectionality, uh, which is how different perhaps disadvantages or vulnerabilities combine to leave people especially vulnerable or disadvantaged in certain cases. And then what we do in the report is we link crises to inequalities, and they are very interlinked uh, in many ways. Uh, In the past, inequalities have led to crises. Um, And then what happens is, is they take a pattern of inequalities that exists, and they typically make things worse. I guess the most recent contemporary example is the growth in billionaires during the COVID crisis, while at the same time, uh, hundreds of millions of people dropped back into poverty, reversing the progress that we'd made in the previous 15 years of the the MDGs. So uh, inequalities can lead to crises. Inequalities generally get made worse through crises. uh, And we link this back to uh, essentially how we have made changes to how we govern and incentivize our economies. And then we set out a, uh, a, a in the penultimate chapter, we set out, it, it, it's a vision for eco-social contracts because there's no blueprint here. There is nothing that you can sort of, you know, put down on paper and said it would, it would work in every part of the world. You know, e- social contracts are very, very specific to the societies in which they're brokered with their governments. They're very uh, specific to the resources available to culture to the way that people approach things. Um, But nevertheless, we try to set out what might be key components of fairer, greener, eco-social contracts. I'll just give a couple of examples because people can go into this in the report. One of them would be a more progressive fiscal system, i.e. a recognition that those with the ability to pay more taxes can actually help then put in place the institutions, the state institutions that support fairer and greener economic growth. So it's actually a win-win. You can't divorce societies from economies. And we've had regressions in fiscal progressivity uh, over the last few years. We can see that in the wealth that people have been able to generate. We can see it in the wealth that people have been able to place overseas, which is then untaxed. We've seen it also in the growth of, if you like, internet-based industries, which pay very little tax, uh, depending on where they shop around to be based from. Um, So we have seen um, a lack of uh, tax progressivity at the national level. We've also seen a lack of coordination, uh, which which will eventually lead us to, can we cooperate and have a multilateral system that tackles uh, global taxation um, at at the global level? Another example um, that we use is a fairer sexual contract, i.e. a division of responsibilities around care, for example. So these would just be two examples of how you could start creating fairer eco-social contracts. Uh, the other one, of course, the obvious one, is uh, a much more rigorous approach to protecting the natural resources we have, recognising that we are you know, just one creature uh, interlinked with the world not not masters of it but a part of it thank you for for that it brings it brings to light um the complexity of the report maybe i should go back and read the report at least in some of its parts rather than the synthesis but the synthesis the readers will find the synthesis all of this that you that you described and for some parts i would like to underline it's quite groundbreaking it's been long in the making 16 you mentioned that i remember your previous flagship report and i thought it was really spot on on certain issues that are required to 
to advance the, um, the implementation or the realization of the vision of Agenda 2030, and it was already there. So the international community accepts the, uh, the notion that inequalities um, are a crisis, a global crisis, yeah, on, this, on, on, on par with climate change, for example. But what, what all this all mean for multilateralism going forward is where I would like to take our, our chat uh, next, because in the report, you also mentioned the need to reimagine multilateralism, and uh, there are many other analysts and, um, and intellectuals and researchers that would agree with you promptly, especially now. Uh, I think now the case is quite obvious, but a few years ago, there were many uh, more thinking about trying to imagine the future of multilateralism rather than the, the multilateralism of the future, which is clearly squarely on the table uh, today, I think, as, as a question. So your report um, is, is a warning uh, of the pressing need to redesign a global system, our global system. Uh, and you say that in the report quite, uh, quite clearly. And at the same time, this is an important question concerning the evolution of what we call multilateralism. And that's our basically only uh, point of focus for, for the, for the podcast. Um, we, we want to bring out all these voices. And so let's go into it at multilateral systemic level. Uh, what drives inequality and what is the interaction between forms of inequalities and, um, how that plays out, um, from your point of view, uh, multilateralism, its evolution, inequalities. How can we make sense of that? Let me try my best. I, I think there are three sort of blocks of the argument to put on the table. I think the first thing that, you know, having worked on on these social and economic issues for, for almost three decades now is that, you know, inequalities feature as one of the SDGs uh uh, it's goal 10 now. Um, it, it almost didn't make it into the SDGs. And in fact, if you look at the targets underneath the goal, it's a hodgepodge of things which, uh, you know, it's probably one of the least well-considered of the SDGs that was uh, put in. But they, but it almost didn't make it in. Almost the goal on climate change didn't make it in, if I remember, uh, back to the process properly. But winding the clock back even further, uh, say 20 years, inequalities was was not a topic that governments were, were willing to talk about. Um, you could talk about absolute poverty that led to MDG1 uh, but you could not talk about uh, a system or particularly an economic system that created inequalities because it's a, it's a direct threat I think to the model of capitalism that we've moved towards since since 1980 and I think that's one of the key arguments of this report is that you know, some people think well you know we, we, we're going to end up with a market-based economy, and I think a market-based economy allocates resources well. It can be inclusive. I mean, it's the right level of intervention, the right compacts between the private and public sectors, and you can have a thriving market economy which supports healthy economies and societies. But we, in the last 40 years, have shifted to a much more aggressive form of capitalism in which people that own assets, capital, are doing much, much better than the people who are contributing their labour. And so inequalities in this sense are not just a, a byproduct that's unfortunate of how we organise economics. They're actually built in by design and they're going to continue getting worse if we continue to foddle follow this model of essentially rentier-based uh, capitalism. So what the report does in its last chapter is it sets out things that governments can do themselves in terms of managing their economies, in terms of complementing those with social institutions. But then, of course, we turn to uh, multilateralism and cooperation because now no 
no nation state is an island. We are fully globalized in so many ways. The decisions that we take on pollution, on emissions, how we manage natural resources, on how we tax, on how we compete on tax, all have implications for other countries. So cooperation and multilateralism is a key part of the argument for being able to move to new eco-social contracts. And there are lots of um, examples of inequalities that exist between countries that in a way impede cooperation and multilateralism. As I said, we started the report before uh, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, and it's quite difficult to make a direct link back from aggression between countries, you know, coming from inequalities. But the, I guess the main one is, is climate. You know, look at the way that poorer countries in the world who've contributed least to emissions, who have the fewest resources to deal with climate change and adapt to it, and are facing the biggest impacts, which are not their fault, I mean, this is a is a pure case of where we should have cooperation, we should have transfers for loss and damage, we should have support on adaptation that comes from the countries that actually produced the emissions and grew on the basis of emissions in the first place. And when you have an issue like that that isn't being resolved, then clearly cooperation and multilateralism isn't working. And I think there are lots of ideas uh, out there which uh, reimagine or improve coordination or the prospects of coordination. Uh, Our common agenda that the Secretary General set out um, uh, several years ago is a very good starting place and a very strong argument for improving um, cooperation. But of course, when you're trying to move from an existing system to a new system, then you face uh, entrenched interests, you face, uh, you know, politics of the division of multilateralism, the way that countries own different bits of it, which makes change hard, change and reform hard. And I think when you and I have talked about this in the past, uh, you know, when people say, how can you, you know, improve the current multilateralism? Well, the current multilateralism isn't really working. So you do have to move to something more, more radical. And hopefully that doesn't mean throwing the baby out with the bathwater and thinking that you can't actually solve these problems without reforming uh, multilateralism but we do need to think again 75 years into the UN system in particular how we can make it work better and how countries can recognize that their own health in the future depends on healthy multilateralism and cooperation and there is indeed in your in in, in your report there is this linked strongly uh, link between multilateralism evolution i would say going towards or or taking the path towards a multilateralism that will be functional to the society and the the, the next stage of our civilization for lack of a better uh, expression um, and there is a link between that taking that path and the nature of the eco-social contract so there is a part of of, of the report in which um Andres or the authors basically advocate for uh, a new development model with three key pillars, alternative economic approaches that center environmental and social justice and rebalance state, market, society, nature relations, transformative social policies based on a fair fiscal competence, you mentioned that before, and reimagine multilateralism. So if we stay here for a while in, in our conversation, my question would be for you to help us explore whether the new multilateral 
liberalism that will rebalance all of that is inside the notion of eco-social contract or emerges from it as if should we start international cooperation on a new eco-social understanding of reality and then that from that would proceed a, a practice of a new multilateralism or should we say the international relations sphere as a primary responsibility to redesign the model of multilateralism so that new eco-social contracts can emerge. Yeah, it, it's very diff- difficult to think of sequencing or how this will flow, particularly in short time frames. These shifts take decades generally to play out. So let's look at the individual pieces. Um, people in their local communities around the world are already fighting and campaigning for new social contracts. I think that's one of the things that Unrest recognises. You see it in campaigns for climate justice. You see it in campaigns for greater recognition and equality between different groups of people, even if they have different characteristics. So that that's already going on. That, I think, plays out primarily in national or local contexts, which then shifts the politics within countries, hopefully in the areas, uh, hopefully to progressive areas where things improve. I think at that point, when you have enough governments that genuinely recognise they need to build fairer societies and live within the boundaries of the planet, then ultimately that reaches uh, multilateralism and eventually that creates a critical mass, if you like, for greater engagement on issues of common concern uh, to all countries. But let's just go into a couple of examples because it sounds a bit abstract otherwise. And let's let's stick with tax. Now, in the last uh, 30 or 40 years, we've had uh, competition to attract foreign investment and business around the world through lowering corporate tax rates. And, you know, within our sovereign model, that is what governments have cho- chosen to do. What that does in the end or what has resulted is that governments have slowly become starved of the finances that they need to put in place the social institutions that create healthy growth and healthy societies. So there's lots of money in the world. It's not a problem of a lack of money to solve the world's problems. It's it's a question of where it sits and whether governments can also have access to that to, in a way, put the guardrails on capitalism that lead to healthy societies and healthy economies. Uh, When it's come to the issue of global cooperation on tax, however, that's been one of the, the slowest areas of progression in the last 30 years. You have the key stronger economies in the OECD who occasionally talk about but do very little about reaching a common consensus on how they tax, particularly new businesses across borders. And you've had countries excluded from those discussions, particularly in the global south. And there's been very, very little appetite to have a discussion under the UN on how you improve global cooperation on tax so that all governments benefit and so ultimately they can better support their societies uh, and economies. So here you have a clear example of where a lack of common will and essentially competition between countries in pursuit of unfair growth is actually leading us to be all, uh, all, all worse off. Another example could be what we learned from the recent global health crisis. What, what, what did we learn? What, what, what do you see as unrest when you look through the lens of your um, social development research, but also the flagship report? Um, is, is the global health crisis we went through, all of us, um, and the COVID pandemic, etc., an example? 
that reinforces um, the the basic arguments of the of the report. Yeah, the crises that we look at in depth in the report include economic and uh, economic and financial crises. They include political crises around governance and trust and information. But we also look at COVID as well, because it, I think it's been, as many others have pointed out, one of the greatest uh, lived uh, expressions of inequality that we've seen. Um, first of all, of course, you had a number of countries that lacked the resources to protect their societies from the immediate consequences of COVID. And the immediate ones were health-based, and so therefore hospitals and clinics and medicines and nurses available to treat people who caught COVID. But then also because of the government responses that we put in place, that we chose to put in place, and and for good reason, the lockdowns, uh, people not going to the office, people being unable to travel. Of course, you know, in in a, in a richer country that could provide uh, support to people to get them through that crisis, that worked well. But in poorer parts of the world, people still had to go to the market to buy food. They still had to go out to work. And so it was a completely different sort of context in which not just COVID played out, but also the lockdowns and restrictions played out. And then finally, to crown it all, we had this huge vaccine inequality where rich countries competed to buying up early stocks of vaccines and even now, the coverage of vaccination in low and middle income countries is still nowhere near sufficient so that we protect people well into the future. So you had a pattern of inequalities that existed before within countries, between countries. You had a health crisis which spread all around the world and which led ultimately to bigger inequalities after COVID. And so that's one of the examples that we go into in depth. Yeah, and I wonder if inequalities create their own crisis, then this massive spike in inequality is um, um, due to COVID. Um, I wonder if down the road, a little bit later, um, will generate um, bigger and different crises. But that 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 we'll see. I wanted to yeah, on this point. I was just going to say. Look, I mean, let's think of the issue of of trust in the context of multilateralism here and pick up two crises. In 2008, you had an economic and financial crisis, which was driven by super complicated financial instruments and fraud in one of the world's richest economy, the world's richest economy in the US that spread around the world. And after that, you had many countries who had not contributed to this say, you know, how can you lecture us about how we run our economies when you've created a global and economic crisis that eventually led to uh, at least 10 years of stagnation and austerity. So a lot of trust is lost between countries when something like that happens. And then more recently in COVID, how countries acted around distributing vaccines, particularly to countries that didn't have the resources to pay for them. Where does that leave trust? So one of the biggest crises facing multilateralism is that when it comes to the crunch, actions erode trust. And then people don't want to cooperate anymore because they actually don't think that that goodwill will be carried out. Climate is another one. A commitment many years ago to put $100 billion into a fund to help poorer countries adapt to the impacts of climate change, and we're not there. Much of that money is loans. The money still isn't there. There are promises and mathematical sort of tricks to try to put it together, but at the end of the day, the money wasn't there, and that erodes trust. And that is one of the biggest faults uh, and biggest crises facing multilateralism at the moment. And that leads us to confirm Confirming, in a way, the urgent need to redesign the, the system and redesign, reimagine what we call multilateralism. But it also leaves us with the question, where do we start? Is there, for example, my question to you is,
is in your analysis, in your studies and research as an institute, did you come across concrete examples of change by design that could be of inspiration? So most of what we've gone through now we do in this episode is rather discouraging or is rather telling of a very poor adaptation capacity of humankind in terms of its new conditions, its new changes, its new fully interdependent globalization, complete. So I wonder, I'm looking for hope now. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for pockets in which you would have discovered examples that can be of inspiration. And you can say, look, this is being done and that could be encouraged and it may work on a larger scale, for example. Is there any such thing? It, it, it is a discouraging picture and it's hard to find pinpricks. I mean, I'll try to give one. It's a little bit historical now. Um, and I wonder also if you sit in the UN system, if you've sat in the UN system for 20 years and you understand, if you like, the different bits of the UN, the decisions taken by governments and the rules that they set themselves and vetoes and consensus, etc., whether, you know, how we look at that. Then we look at the civil service part of the UN and how we run ourselves and who owns that and whether it's meritocratic and whether we compete, whether there's efficiency in the UN civil service itself. So it, it's, it's, it's a very complex picture. But let me let me just touch briefly on, on where we started, the post-2015 uh, development agenda. I was sitting in UNDP as the director of the Millennium Development Goals for UNDP uh, in 2010 when academics around the world started thinking about what could replace uh, the MDGs. And so we had to think down and, of course, respond to that and think about it, but also show intellectual leadership from the UN as the custodians of the MDGs that had been agreed by member states. And we were still coming out of an economic and financial crisis at the global level, which had eroded the trust that we talked about. Poorer countries essentially said to rich countries, don't lecture us on how to run our economies and our finances. So we started from a very, very low position of trust and a, a recognition that governments wanted to consider negotiate and agree the next set of goals. People who've, who've not worked on these goals and targets for many years will may not remember that the MDGs were sort of given to the world by the then Secretary General Kofi Annan in a roadmap uh, for implementation of, an early, of the Millennium Declaration. And member states didn't sign them off. Um, if you look through the Millennium Declaration, you can pick out the MDGs, but actually their synthesis and consolidation was given to member states by the Secretary General. And, and quite frankly, when it came to the post-2015 era, government said, you're not going to do that to us again. We're going to negotiate the next set of rules and goals. Um, but how do you do that when there's no trust? So we came up with um, a strategy initially, firstly within UNDP, but then across the UN system to have a very long process of discussion and learning and brokering about what the most important things were. And we were able to bring together the follow-up process on the MDGs and the follow-up process on Rio to actually reach a new set of goals, which didn't just cover social development, which the MDGs largely, largely did, but also linked that to the natural resources available to the world and the damage that we've been doing to them, uh, particularly in the last 50, uh, 50 years. Um, and because that process took so long, because it involves so many people, it actually built trust. I remember one of my bosses uh, in, in UNDP saying, this has been the largest training on sustainable development for diplomats that's ever taken place. And you had all member states in the room, uh, in the open working group, they were talking about what was important. 
they were clearly negotiating as well. But at the end of the day, when the SDGs were published in September uh, 2014, uh, yes, I'm trying to remember when the, which year, it was 2015, 2015, yeah, yeah. Uh, one month before I moved to Geneva. Um, You know, you actually had something that all member states agreed on. There had been compromises, there were some weaknesses in how some goals and targets are constructed, but nevertheless, that exercise of talking, of learning, built trust. And what it taught me is that if you want to actually get to the the bottom of some of these serious challenges that we face globally, you have to spend time and invest in long processes that bring people together face-to-face, sharing perspectives, sharing information. I think the other key key lesson that I took away is that you know, left to their own devices, uh, and, and I say this, of course, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but governments usually negotiate down to the lowest common denominator. They negotiate away from ambition. So one of the deliberate, I think, approaches that the SDG process took was to engage civil society and academics and think tanks around the world in a way to keep governments honest and to get them negotiating upwards towards ambition rather than downwards. Um, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that you know we almost ended up with a set of SDGs that excluded climate change. I remember chairing a panel where on which Jeff Sachs spoke, and he said to member states quite angrily, "How can you look a schoolchild in the face and tell them you've got a f- political framework on sustainable development and it doesn't have a goal on climate change?" You know, this is quite frankly the nonsense areas that we were in at that, at that point. But what I learned is you've got to involve everybody, you've got to involve people beyond governments, and you've got to give it enough time. And I think if you do that and you do so in an honest way, then you can build trust and then you get to cooperation. And in a way, that's part of the answer of how you reimagine cooperation and multilateralism. Well, thank you for that, because indeed the, the hope is there. And this, I can see, I can see, and I hope our listeners can, can hear it as well, that that is the, where the hope is in, the, in this dialogue. Inclusivity, and actually most thinkers today uh, place inclusivity in the top three characterizations of a possible um, multilateral for for the future that would be inclusive participatory so it goes hand in hand with what you were saying so as as we come closer to wrapping up this this episode i wanted to going back perhaps to to what is found in your flagship report um 22 what is your final thoughts what, what what would like what would you like really the audience to take away from this episode what is important I think, you know, as you said, the last chapter looks at what governments can do themselves to reform their economies, to put the social institutions in place that support healthier economies and then multilateralism. Let me just concentrate on really the first one of those. At the minute, our economic system is broken. It's, it's allocating the benefits of growth completely unfairly. And people are dropping out of the labor force. They're not being paid enough. You've got people across the world working two or three jobs just to make minimum wage. And fundamentally, people think the world is unfair. Now, we have to get to the bottom of that. We need to create economic entities, businesses, not-for-profits that are run and have a different, that run in a different way and have a different vision. They need to be socially responsible. They need to be ecologically 
responsible and they need to actually re-tilt and rebalance who gains from growth. Otherwise, we're going to end up with an economic system that essentially eats itself because people are going to opt out of it. We have the challenge of technology at the same time, which we need to grasp. But nevertheless, unless we grasp the inequalities in our economic system, that has implications across the board for all of the other crises we face. And if we don't get that right fundamentally, because at the moment these flaws are built in by design, uh, then we're not going to be able to make any progress. Most of our listeners are students, researchers, practitioners in multilateralism. Where they can find more resources from UNRIS? Is there a place on, on, on the web, your, your website? Would you like to mention a couple of, um, of those? Yeah, I, mean, I have a few papers in front of me. Of Obviously, people listening to this won't be able to see them. And they are very short summaries of this latest flagship report. We have a, a 30-page overview. We have a six-page page pamphlet we have a leaflet but actually the report is you know a thorough academic study with uh, references and data on all of the issues that we've talked about today um the chapters of the report uh, can be downloaded from our website which is unrist Org. And in addition to the flagship report, you'll find the research programs that UNRIS lead that allow, that leads us to some of the things that we're saying that leads us to our, uh, the conclusions we're making. We've actually got five programs. I'll mention them briefly now because people might be interested in individual uh, programs. We have one on transformative social policy. Uh, we have one on um, alternative economies for transformation. Uh, we have one on gender justice and development. Uh, and we have one on climate and environmental justice. Uh, our fifth actually is a program based from our office in Bonn, which translates all of this work into things that we hope make a practical difference, which is basically getting research out, in, out into the world so it influences policymakers. We do a lot of training with development agencies. We do a lot of training around the world. We produce guidelines on how some of these policies can be enacted, policies that come from research that we've done with partners all around the world. Paul Ladd, Director of Unreased here in Geneva, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you very much.